I'm Savitra Wilson, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to my podcast, From Solid Ground to Resilient. Hi, everyone. This is Savitra Wilson, and welcome back to From Solid Ground to Resilient. On this episode, I am really excited to have a um, friend of mine, Brandon Rule, who is a uh, entrepreneur, real estate developer, and someone that I was introduced to via another great friend of mine, uh, Chris Senegal, who I'll also have to have on here at some point. Um, this episode is also really special because it's going to be a two-part um, episode. Um, in the first episode, we'll go into a little bit about what Brandon does, his background, and talk a little bit about how individuals like yourselves or myself can get involved in investing in real estate. Um, fun fact to know, I just bought another property, another home. And so I'm trying to think about ways that I can um, do more real estate. I now own four properties, but it really wasn't necessarily intentional. I kind of saw um, real estate as an avenue to um, stop renting. And that's what led me to buy my first condo. Um, now I'm leasing that out. And uh, my other properties as well were mostly like homes, but now have tenants in them. And uh, my fourth property, which is now the home that I live in, um, also a asset, but home nonetheless. And so when I think about real estate, one thing that has always stayed with me um, from just listening to uh, family members and friends, like my good friend, Anthony Kimball out in Baton Rouge and here in New Orleans, who also is in real estate, is you can use real estate as a pathway to building wealth. And for anyone that has listened to me or followed me, you know, I am all about creating wealth and particularly creating wealth in black communities. And so this conversation is very timely. And one other quick thing that's a fun fact is that I also recorded um, a podcast episode with Brandon over on his podcast as well. And so it's definitely like a, a double header here, or as he would say, a back to back And so you can also visit his podcast and subscribe and learn more about his future endeavors. So let's jump right in. Welcome to From Solid Ground to Resilient. Today I have Mr. Brandon Rule, B. Rule, for those who really know him. Uh, Welcome, Brandon. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you. Appreciate you hosting. And uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. So... Brandon is an entrepreneur, real estate and business advisor, speaker and influencer, and commercial real estate developer. Uh, What I find most inspiring about you, uh, Brandon, is that what you talk about resonates with people irregardless of their demographic, their background, or makeup, right? And so that's something that I have really appreciated about listening to you talk in Clubhouse or watching your posts on Instagram is that you seem to resonate with everyone. Would you say that is true? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think I come from a very diverse, well, not necessarily a diverse background, but I can code switch, if you will. Oh, okay. We can that later. We can that later. <laughs> We're definitely going to unpack that. <laughs> uh, but tell us a little bit more about yourself and your journey. How did you get here to where you are now? Great question. Um, I started off, if you want to know from the very beginning, I was born in Los Angeles, 
Uh, I was in an earthquake when I was five and I lost everything. It was the Northridge earthquake and it was the worst natural disaster in American history from a financial perspective outside of, well, at the time. Now it's, I think it's second or third behind Katrina as well as maybe the floods in Houston. But it was, it was terrible. So I was living in Northridge. We lost everything. We moved from there. My dad wanted to move back to Chicago. My parents are high school sweetheart from Chicago and they moved to LA, had me, but he wanted to move back. We ended up settling in Milwaukee because my grandfather, my mom's father at the time, had a big house and extra space in the attic, and we didn't have anything, so we moved there. A couple months later, we ended up getting a house. Two years later, they bought a house that they still live in today. So that's like my backstory and my background. I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. If you ask me where I claim, it's Milwaukee. That's what raised me. Milwaukee, for those who don't know, is you know the top 25 city in terms of like size population, I believe. Um, but it's the worst place for black people in the country. Um, segregation, uh, wealth inequalities between blacks and whites. And we can go on and on and on and on. And I'm a graduate from the Milwaukee public school system. Uh, I wear that on my sleeve because uh, where I am right now, I, I probably shouldn't be there based on the circumstances of which I'm from. So I take a lot of pride in overcoming those obstacles, those barriers and those situations to be able to blossom into the person you see. So after graduating from the Milwaukee public school system, I went on to Marquette University. Uh, I thought I was going to be a doctor. My father told me at a very young age, he was like, yo, my dad told me I had to be better than him. So you have to be better than me. I'm like, all right, well, if you're an x-ray technician, I'm going to be better than you by being a doctor. You know, like I was young. He's like, I'll be a doctor because I wanted to help people. Uh, My mom is a community, you know, volunteer and been running our neighborhood program for the last 15 years. And my dad was in the healthcare industry. So everything in me was just to help people. And I had to aspire to be better than him. And I, I work towards that pretty much every day. You know, I don't, I don't think I made it there yet. Some people might think so. He may even think so, but I don't think I made it there yet. But um, coming from that love, coming from that background really, you know, helped me go. I, I thought I was going to be a doctor, went to Marquette University, studied chemistry and bio, failed out of those, realized that that wasn't my path. And I pivoted. Uh, I started studying sociology and um, I got tapped on the shoulder by the dean of economics at Marquette University. Uh, He was just like, hey, man, you're doing pretty good in these classes. You ever consider being an econ major? And I'm like, no, but okay, I will, I guess. And I started studying economics and really understanding how the economy works, you know, capitalism and how money is a tool as opposed to, you know, being a devil and some of the things that were taught in our community. Uh, but then also really being empathetic to the situations and the people within those communities is, is really the core and the foundation of who I am. And we could talk more about like what I do, but like that's the backstory of like from the beginning to me identifying who I am and what I stand for. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. Uh, something that you said, I'm going to say for later about uh, having made it yet right so haven't had made it yet and what that looks like in the future but we'll unpack that in a little bit um so yeah let's talk a little bit about some of the projects what you're working on what are you up to what are you doing today yeah today uh i mean in my mind i'm all over the place for real if you want me to just be 100 percent honest i'm doing the time uh, but it's all rooted in the same thing you know my core values um i I'm all about blackness. I'm all about dignity and respect and um, really just trying to striving for excellence, if you will. So what does that look like for me? 
Uh, I'm a commercial real estate developer. That's the primary thing that I do. I run a company called Rural Enterprises. Um, we've developed about, I mean, as of this spring, close to $100 million of uh, development to date. And I have another $100 million in my pipeline, not including this new deal that I might do that we can talk about later because that's that'll that'll be a game changer. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, talking, talking about, about like. It legendary like i'll be in an african-american museum one day for doing that project if it goes through so uh we'll see fingers crossed um you'll get there one way or another but let's well, get there yeah, 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 for sure, for sure, for sure. i mean god like literally over the last week god just been blessing me you know um last saturday around the same time i met with a guy um who's a black developer og in the game and there's a potential opportunity that it's a two billion dollar project in the heart of atlanta so Again, we'll we'll talk about that. But some of the things that I've done to date, um, I run Rural Enterprises, that development company. I'm launching a real estate investment crowdfunding platform to really democratize the process of real estate investing for everyday people, if you will. Like I'm, we're targeting millennials. And frankly, what we want to do is um, pinpoint those millennials who may want to purchase a home but can't, you know, may want to invest in real estate but can't. Uh, this is a tool for them to be able to do so. And it's a full platform um, to spread out their risk, right? Like I am a very astute real estate investor and I understand multifamily very well. So I can like underwrite deals. Um, so by the time these deals get to the platform, they've already been vetted by people, me and people just as smart, if not smarter than me, based on the experience that they've had thus far. So really excited about that opportunity. Uh, what else do I do? I'm launching you know, a podcast here soon as well. So hopefully yes. by the time this episode drops, mine does, and you were just on it. So I look forward to, you know, people. We're doing a, a double take, you know. Yeah, a double take. He, <laughs> for he sure. just interviewed me just for FYI, everyone. And now I'm interviewing him. So this is definitely a double take that we'll be happy to share. So two things that you said that I want for you to further um, just elaborate on. One is to try to de-risk real estate projects for like the everyday person. Now, when I think of real estate, I actually think of it as a less risky avenue of investment, particularly when we think about it parallel to tech where I come from, right? And mm. so I used to talk to real estate guys and they were like, wait, so you're telling me that you want you guys want people to put money into these tech companies and we may not ever get a return. Like there's no promise. There's no guarantee. Like they could get their mind around that. And so when I look at real estate, I look at it as not as risky as tech. Um, but when you say it's as risky as tech or there's layers to it that, um, you can help like de-risk it. And I do love the idea of creating a platform to uh, vet projects because now I feel like everybody has a project and it's like, who, who do you know? Whoever has the best story actually might not be the best project. It's like, Man, and then what should I be listening to? <laughs> what should I be looking for? So we'd love to unpack those things as far as like de-risking and the risk around real estate and um, how can someone who is a newbie get started? Yeah. So there's a lot there. Um, the The first question I believe was, really the the risk associated with real estate as it relates to tech, right? And kind of comparing the two. So we can, we can start with that one. Um, tech is higher risk, but it's a much higher reward, right? If you think about uh, a, a seed round, when you, when you put that money in within an 18 to 24 month period, 
in theory, you will have a three X multiple on your money, right? Like that's a really quick pop. And if you choose to leave your money in and, and ride this horse that may be a stallion and, and is a unicorn, if you will, right? All the way to unicorn status, um, the ability for such a nominal amount to be invested in these companies at the outset um, and that return, call it, let's just say five years later, will absolutely outperform any real estate asset ever, right? Like that, there's no way that a real estate project can kick off that type of return. However, um, I mean, you know this better than I do, but, you know, it's probably a nine to or a one to 10 or two to 10 max potential less than that for a unicorn. But I'm talking about even like breaking even and making your money back. Right. So, yeah, most of your investments go to zero in tech. You're waiting for that big one to hit. Right. (laughs) Or a few who want a few to do well. And, And that's why real estate guys just don't understand it, because it's like, yo, I am not putting my money in something that has a 90 plus percent chance of not working. Like that's not a, that's not a good investment. Uh, so on the real estate side of things, I mean, you do have the potential for uh, more consistent returns and it may not be as high of a pop, but it's also not as high of a risk, right? Um, terrible deals are terrible deals across the board, whether that's tech or real estate or anything, right? Like, a bad investment ultimately is a bad investment. So let's let's put those to to the side for a moment because I think that was a follow up question. Like, how do we evaluate good deals versus bad deals? But assuming that these deals are okay, mediocre, right? You should be able to expect uh, a pretty decent return. But it depends on really the asset class and the stage in which the investment is, right? So there's there's really four kind of stages, right? There's core; those are your big buildings downtown. Um, class A office buildings, you know, class A multifamily in New York, San Francisco, Boston, Washington, D.C., these really, really primary markets. Big and money. Have big, big, long money. Yeah, like $100 million, billion dollar plus, et cetera, like dumb, long, stupid money. And then you have a, a step down from that, which is not down in a sense is less quality of an asset. Uh, in my opinion, it's just uh, an a different type of risk tolerance, right? So you have a core plus asset and core plus is you can have this big shiny building, but it may be in new Orleans and not in New York, right? It may not be in a primary market. It may be the exact same building, but what happens is the price that you can get while renting that building out on a per square foot basis for the office or, you know, the retail or multifamily, whatever it is, obviously new Orleans is not as expensive as New York, right? So you have, a quality asset that is not as high in value, which is now defined as like core plus. And then you have the next one, which is really where I think a lot of the magic happens. It's it's a value add strategy. And people have heard this, right? Like people are probably most familiar with value add. That's when you go in and you see a duplex and you want to fix it up and rent it out, right? That is essentially falling into this value add bucket. And um, that's one of the four kind of pillars of real estate kind of investment. And then the last one is opportunistic, right? And that's where development happens. That's when you have uh, just land and you want to actually develop it into something. That's when you have a dilapidated building and you want to, you do a, you know, adaptive reuse. Let's say it was a big old warehouse and you wanted to just put new lofts in that thing. That's a opportunistic strategy. And the reason why I went through those four is just to walk you through the risk tolerance of each, right? When you have a core asset and you're investing in downtown New York and you have 
a high credit tenant like Apple, the risk of that is really low. So frankly, the return, the return of that is really low. But on the other side of that spectrum, if you have, um, you know, this old building that is in an urban infill location, let's just call it New Orleans. Um, let's say it's in a gentrifying areas. What, what's one of the gentrifying areas in New Orleans? All of them. <laughs> um, Treme. Treme. Okay. Let's take Treme, for example, right? Let's say we're in Treme. Uh, if I see an opportunity in Treme and it was an old uh, 7-Eleven. But the zoning for it allowed for 75 units of housing. That is a very risky development or risky investment strategy because this is not class A downtown like Apple. This is I have to tear this building down. I have to get the entitlements. I have to make architecture plans. I have to manage this process of bringing an entirely new building into fruition. So the returns that you're getting on that is going to be much higher. So on the core side, you're looking at maybe 4% annual return. And on the value add, well, even, yeah, on the value add side, core, maybe 4%, you know, core plus, let's say six value add, you're closer to, you know, eight to 10 uh, and then opportunistic, you know, 12 to 14, like annually, but on an IRR basis, which is really to account for your money over a course of time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you're looking at a 20 plus IRR on a, on a development deal because the risk associated with their capital is higher. You're looking at, you know, closer to a, a 15 or so 12 to 15 on a value add, you know, and it just goes lower and lower. So that's, that's how it works on the real estate side. And those are for savvy investors. And oftentimes savvy investors know how to underwrite these deals. They understand every single thing that I just said. And frankly, a lot of our people don't have that historical knowledge of real estate cycles and the different types and pretty much anything institutional or any of the institutional resources to be able to do quality research on these assets we've been boxed out of. Absolutely. And now there's a resurgence. Uh, I'll pause in a second, uh, but there's a resurgence of... uh, I have a question, a follow-up question. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Um, ahead So someone like me who... So I own four properties, one of which is my home, and I haven't really been. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. But so I look at real estate as an asset, as most people probably do. And I look at it as like appreciating asset, depending on, you know, where I'm every all of my assets are appreciated. They're, you know, they're definitely um, great properties. But I don't think I've been I'm trying to be more intentional about what I buy and then how does that what does that look like in the future right and so for me i've essentially purchased properties primarily because oh that condo i lived in that condo i bought that condo i kept it now i'm going to lease it oh you know i bought this home um in gentilly or i have this home back at home and so i just now started like just acquiring um assets and property um, but for me, I actually want to shift and start just investing. And so now that I want to make that shift, which is, I don't know if I would consider this opportunistic, although for me, I feel like, okay, how do I now make money on real estate outside of just like owning these homes that I can lease out? But how can I get involved in like bigger deals? How can I invest in bigger deals? And how should I, someone like me be thinking about real estate investing, um, 
particularly because one thing I've always kind of known just from like my father kind of passing it down to me and just knowing it from um, conversations with colleagues in real estate. But I see real estate as a pathway to building wealth. And because one of my passions is building wealth, I want to acquire real estate or I want to get, I want to invest in real estate. So how do, what do I do next? Yeah. So the first thing that you do, if you are a person that is interested in building wealth or generational wealth in real estate is ask yourself a question. That's the first thing you do. And the question that you ask yourself is, do you want to be a passive investor or an active investor? Because those are two completely different things. And that's where you start, right? So like, okay, that's a good point. Cause let me tell you, let me ask you that. Let me ask you that. Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. to be honest, these tenants are not, <laughs> I, I don't see myself having a whole bunch of tenants. Let's put it like that. So I think I need to be a passive investor here for, okay. how do I become okay. a passive investor? <laughs> so yeah. This is, so um, y'all are listening that, to this in real time. These are real questions of me trying to think through what my next real estate investment <laughs> would be. So when you hear me say I didn't did something, it's going to be because of Brandon. So right now, <laughs> I'm asking well, him a real question. <laughs> and I have yeah, a few no, people. For sure. I mean, it's a great question. Yeah, I have a few people that send me stuff. They're like, hey, we're raising money for this project downtown. We're doing this. So we're working. And I'm like, what do I do? <laughs> like, how do I know how to vet these projects if I'm not in real estate or from real estate? He like, oh, I have boy. a friend that can help you. Have a friend that can help you. <laughs> well, so so there's there's levels and there's layers to it, right? So um, now that we've identified that you want to be a passive investor, right? The next kind of stage is, am I accredited or am I not accredited, right? So an accredited investor, the rules are changing on March 15th, but let's just use them, you know, for as they currently, March 15th, 2021. What's happening on March 15th? Projected date. Uh, some of the SEC uh, legislation is changing. So they're they're expanding guidelines for some of their regulations and accreditations and things like that. But as of today, right, if you wanted to be an accredited investor, you need um, at least two hundred thousand dollars in annual income. Uh, I think for the last two years and or a million dollars of net worth that is not included in your home. And that's probably very similar to do some of the tech investments, too. Right. Because you got to invest. Right. So assuming yes. that you're accredited. That's so I am accredited. And then investor. there's a non-accredited route. Let's go through both. So let's start with you. Let's start with you. And then we'll okay. go to the non-accredited investor after. Let's do it. So if you want to be a passive investor as an accredited uh, investor, you have opportunities to, you know, come across deals that the majority of people cannot. <clears throat> In the 1930s, you know, the SEC passed um, a law that prohibited non-accredited investors from investing in securities, right? The only security that you can really invest in as a non-accredited investor is on the stock market. It's an exchange. And the reason why they do that or they set that is because they don't want people getting taken advantage of. And it's a slippery slope. When you're on a stock market, you can look at all of their details and, you know, figure out everything about that business. Like the SEC is regulating these folks for companies that are not on the stock market. Historically, They've been excluded from non-accredited investors, but accredited investors can participate in these rounds, right? Most real estate is uh, in a reg D structure. 
So very similar to how venture is structured in some of these, you know, raises. When you talk to your SEC attorney, you structure your Reg D for your. Y'all start off really in like a, um, you know, promissory note, but when it converts to equity, uh, so it's when it converts to equity, it's probably going to be a Reg D. So assuming that there's Reg D opportunities that you can invest in, they typically come in what's called an OM, offering memorandum, right? And you'll see a pretty picture on the front with anywhere to 15 to 75 pages worth of information talking about the overall market, how beautiful a deal it is, how much they're trying to invest, what the anticipated returns are. They cannot say what the returns will be. It's just anticipated because past performance doesn't indicate future performance, right? It's all speculative. Uh, The thing about real estate, when you have a pro forma, it's just your assumptions, right? It's just like, hey, I think it can perform in this way based on the historical things that I'm referencing. The Because they're just assumptions, they can be manipulated, you know, very often. But I say all of that to say, you have access to opportunities that retail investors don't. If you get into a network and know um, people in a real estate space, they can share opportunities with you pretty often. So you have deal flow. We'll, we'll unpack how to determine whether or not it's good deal flow or not in a second. For the non-accredited investor, um, the accredited investors can do this too. There's now 2012 Jobs Act passed. Job the Jobs Act passed in 2016. The SEC came with regulation that allowed for equity crowdfunding, and businesses are using this. Startups are using this, but real estate is also using this, right? This so there's a great. I think everybody's seeing this now for if people, if you're on social media, you have seen someone raising capital via um, crowdfunding, essentially. Absolutely. So the thing about crowdfunding, the the danger of crowdfunding is that um, when you're in a rec CF, it, it is a million dollar cap right now, but it's going to 5 million. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about the impact that that will have, but I am a little worried. Um, the danger is if you have a good marketing package, regardless of the essentials within that, um, you're probably going to be able to raise the money. And it's not even rooted in anything that is substantive because most retail investors can't tell the difference. That's what makes me nervous about. Yes. I mean, going from one million to five million is a huge jump. Um, and I'll admit, I'll be the first to say when I started first seeing people raising capital via crowdfunding, I was a little hesitant because it was so many, it was so much like red tape and things. I was like, okay, I'm reading this and hold on, this don't make sense. And this investor, I don't have no investor rights. (laughs) I have zero investor rights. And, but that changes based on whoever's raising capital and they essentially set that, which can be favorable to investors or completely not favorable to investors, right? But people don't know if you're not familiar with investing or you're not familiar with terminology or the paperwork, how do you become familiar? Like, how do you figure this stuff out so that you can make good investments? Yeah, I think... um, That's what your platform, right? Your platform is hoping to do this, right? Yeah, my platform platform is going to do it for sure. I I just, I'm not a very big promoter for real. So I I try to give things outside of like what I'm doing. Yes, my platform is absolutely going to be a resource for you to find that. So thank you. My platform will be fully vetting these projects up front. 
um, we're looking at in our thesis. I think the thesis is really important as well. Right. So it's not just like the project, but what areas are you investing in? You know, what are the macro and micro trends of that area that complement whatever your investment strategy is going to be? Is it based on appreciation? Right. You can have a strategy um, that is literally based on appreciation because, you know, there's a new catalytic development nearby and eventually it's going to increase the overall values of the pricing. There's another strategy where it's more of a cash flow strategy where, you know, the rents that you're making um, are paying off such good annual returns you're going to invest, even if it doesn't appreciate very much. So when you're that looking like at these deals, you know, is that like kind of like Chris's deal? So, so Chris's deal, yeah, Chris's deal. Yeah. Christopher Senegal, who introduced no, Go ahead us. and explain. Yeah. yeah, Chris is the homie. Go check him out as well. Um, Absolutely. So his, gang gang. Yeah. yeah, I think he was, you know, don't put me on record for this, but I think he was the first um, person to raise a million in um, Arexia to also then return dividends to his investors already. So something like that. Yeah. But check Christopher out. Um, so what model would that be for his, because I know he uh, essentially purchased a property um, and they had tenants. And so they were making money because people were obviously paying Absolutely. their rent. He, he had a, he had a really good thesis, right? He was able to identify seller financing. He was able to, um, you know, offset. He, he doesn't have very high debt on it. Right. I don't think he has any debt on it. So all of the cash flow that's coming in from the property is able to get paid out as a dividend early. Right. So that's that's a really good strategy that he executed on. And yes, he was the first one to raise and fully subscribe the Rec CF in the real estate space and pay out dividends black for sure. But I think even overall. So, yeah, Chris's deal is phenomenal in that way. But really, the value of Chris's deal is in the appreciation. Although he doesn't have very much debt and the cash flow can give you a, you know, a dividend. The dividend isn't what you're in Chris's deal for. You're in Chris's deal for the next five years because the value of that area is going to appreciate, you know, whatever percentage. Um, and and a, a benefit of that, in addition to the appreciation, you get these kind of quarterly dividends. And I think he said all of his investors end up leaving his the dividends in anyway. So you don't have to take the dividend either. You can leave it in, reinvest it, and then have that money mature on top of the money that you already have in. So Chris has a phenomenal example of what things should look like. Um, there are many deals of, there are many examples of what deals should not look like. And uh, what should they not look like? I mean, is that just based on like upfront what you read in the terms and the deal structure, or is that kind of like the the outcome, right? So, oh, how investors would after they invested. Both, both, okay, both. So, so the firsthand. Let me say this. There's a group. Um, reinvest when we launch, you'll be able to go online and see our SEC filings. Our SEC filings will tell you everything about our business strategy, everything that we are looking to do, and it will be clear, concise, and in a very good way. You can take that and apply it to your own thesis. You can also go to a group like Fundrise. Fundrise has a very good strategy that they're executing. They've raised over a billion dollars in the crowd through the same thing. So our platform and Fundrise are actually doing Reg A deals as opposed to CFs. So Reg A is a um, more scrutinized version of CF, but you can also solicit to retail investors and non-accredited investors. Um, however, Everything that you do needs to be disclosed in a certain way and approved by the SEC. 
the, mm-hmm. the thing about a Reg CF, it doesn't have to be approved by the SEC at all. It just has to be disclosed. All you do is say, hey, it's, it's literally, did you check these five boxes? Like I'm simplifying it, right? But did That's you check these five boxes? If yes, then you can lift. Then you can list. It doesn't matter what you're listing. Did you check these five boxes? List. But a Reg A, on the other hand, has some disclosures, right? So there, there are Reg A funds that are out there that, you know, haven't necessarily performed to their maximum potential. But I'll say um, having speculative deals and not true like deal flow identified or at least examples of, of deals, at least seeding. If you don't have a couple deals that seed it, like if it's just blind, you need to truly, truly trust the person that is sponsoring it and underwrite them. So when we say underwrite a sponsor, it's like, yo, what have you done? What is your resume? I can tell you, I can show you everything that I've done. I can literally give you the percentages, the numbers across the board on every single transaction. If anyone asks me what is anything as it relates to my project, I'm going to be able to tell you. Whoever that sponsor is that cannot tell you the answer to your questions, even if they're basic, if they're dancing around them, you need to run immediately. Please run because that's not a good um, fiscal agent of of your cash, right? Like again, for example, I've my first project, 60, 60 units, twelve and a half million dollars. I made six thousand dollars on that project, but I learned everything about development that I could. My next project, 89 units, ground up. I ran that deal. My first deal was a co, so it was like 50-50, but they made most of the money at the end of the day. Neither one of us made much. My next project, I did the whole thing soup to nuts for the most part. I brought in a black consultant to help me on the construction side because I don't know construction very well, and I have a nonprofit partner that assisted with some things throughout, but I led that entire deal. My next two deals um, are actually with the same nonprofit partner, a different nonprofit partner, but those two are with the same. Those two deals, we're kind of doing things 50-50. We're both on everything, but we're picking and choosing who's taking lead just because I didn't want to spread myself too thin. My company is just me and I'm working on all of these things right now. So when it comes to a person that is soliciting funds, and today I've never raised a dollar. Like I have over a hundred million dollars worth of experience and never raised one dollar from any investor. I leveraged long commodities and tax credits to get it done. And I borrowed some capital, startup, you know, whatever, whatever, and paid that back. So I've never raised equity. I've never sold equity. But now that I'm doing it, I'm at a point where I've been in the game for so long. I know what to look out for. I was looking at the last recession. I know these cycles are cyclical. You need to fully vet who you're doing this with. If they have some residential experience flipping houses and they're talking about raising a hundred million dollar fund? Absolutely not. Right. If, if they are doing it, maybe they're just a piece of the deal. So now look at the management team. Okay, cool. Is this person the lead on it or is this person just a member of it? Right. If the lead is a big, you know, I'm working on a, I'm about to announce soon, hopefully a $2 million, de- $2 billion development. I've never done billion. a two billion dollar development. a B, yeah. Yeah, billion would be billion yeah. would be. It's gonna change the game. This one is gonna definitely change the game. Two billion dollar development. It's currently owned by a black developer. They own it already. The master plan is pretty much already in place. It's shovel ready. Um, I would just be going through and literally executing on this plan that's already put in place. So, so how the do you risk associated with me. 
Uh, relationships. That's relationships. it's just relationships. I mean, there no, for the most part, those deals don't make it. Those deals don't make it to the non-accredited investor bucket. It's, it's really hard because you got to raise so much money. Like that deal, I'm gonna be raising twenty five million dollars. You know, it's it's really hard for me to take a chance and raise twenty five million dollars in a crowd. Um, and and the thing about the SEC, you can't do a public crowdfund at the same time as you're doing a kind of public, well, really private offering, if you will. Right. Like right. these are, these are two different things. You can't do both because it's, it's hard for them to differentiate. Um, you can, but it's a lot of risk for doing both. So I'm trying to figure out a strategy where like people can invest in the big one uh, that are accredited, but then on the smaller deals, because it's 165 acres on the smaller deals, if they can invest, you know, if, let's say I'm doing a 200 unit, you know, apartment building or something on it. I want to create a reg CF or a reg a, I want my company reinvest to be able to connect folks to that specific project as a part of a bigger portfolio projects. So I wish I can get people in this master deal, but right now I haven't figured out how to do it just yet. So here's the deal. Brandon and I talked about real estate investing for over an hour. Now staying committed to keeping episodes to 30 minutes or less. So I'll be back next week for part two of breaking into real estate investing with Brandon Rule. See you then. Thanks for listening to From Solid Ground to Resilient with me, your host, Savitra Wilson. If you like this show, subscribe, listen, and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This helps us reach more people like yourselves, risk takers, entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs, and the likes. Also, be sure to visit SavitraWilson.com and sign up for my newsletter. There you can download everything from my actual pricing sheets to pitch decks, capability statements, and more. All to help you get your entrepreneur wheels turning and your business growing. To learn more about my show and listen to all my podcast episodes, go to abfc.co backslash shows. Until next time, remember, even if no one sees it for you, you have to see it for yourself. Let your work be a testament to your grit, gratitude, passion, persistence, and most importantly, resiliency. Resiliency.